Hello friends, how's it going? It's Matt here. You are listening to a special bonus episode of the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, exclusively for paid subscribers with legendary photographer Chris Burkard. So that's good, eh? So if you listen to this and you've supported Looking Sideways with a paid subscription, or you've been given one for free by me for being one of my most loyal and engaged listeners and readers, so tar very much for that. As I mentioned fairly frequently these days, the Looking Sideways community is one of the great joys of this whole business, especially since I shifted everything to Substack. I officially, inverting the commas again, did that back in January. And uh, I've pretty much kept to the schedule that I set myself, which is 10 Things Newsletter every Friday, an episode every Sunday, and then a written piece of some description every Tuesday. And the latter, in particular has been a really wicked addition to the whole gig uh firstly because it's got me writing again like the piece i did on uh, how to read more last week which seemed to go down quite well and also it's just been a great focal point for for the listeners and readers particularly the open threads that have been popular and on more than one occasion a little lively i know i do say it a lot but i do really love hearing from everyone so if you've enjoyed an episode have a question or an idea or just want to say hello substack is the place to do it you can leave a comment or if you download the app then everything lands on your phone when i send them and you've also got access to the chat feature which is at a slow start but people do check it every now and again Um, and as you probably gathered the perks have been coming too thus far this year i've had exclusive paid subscriber competitions with prizes from finister yeti and good rays All you've had to do is leave a comment on the open thread and either myself or a guest have picked a favourite and people have been winning wetsuits, cool boxes, good raise care packages. I've got future prizes coming from DB, Dana, Stance, Patagonia. It's worth checking out. I've also been offering paid subscriber tickets to stuff like my live chat with Chris Burkhard in London the other week. Also dished out a bonus episode 200 with my pal Ed Lee. And you're also about to listen to the latest paid subscriber perk. The recording of said chat with Burkhard recorded in London in March 2023 for an event I did for my pals at DB and which I'm releasing as an episode exclusively for paid subscribers in case you didn't get the point yet. Nice one, eh? Anyway, if you've listened to my chat with Chris last year, you'll have an idea what to expect. This is yet another really open and honest conversation in front of an audience about art, life and creativity from one of the biggest names in the game and somebody I described last year as the most influential visual artist that work in the outdoors, something which I did mention to Chris in this chat and which he did flinch visibly at. Um, We did cover a little bit of the ground we did last year, different audience and all that, but there were some new pearls and some really funny exchanges in this one during a pretty lively chat in front of 100 or so people. I enjoyed it. I'm really enjoying doing the live stuff, actually. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. But yeah, enjoyed this. I hope you do too. Here's me and Burkhard. Enjoy. All right. Thank you all so much for coming out this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Um... There's still seats at the front. If anyone at the back needs a seat, you're more than welcome. Come up the front. There's seats at the front. Oh, that's Charlie. All right. Um, As I say, thank you for everyone who responded to the email, responded to the Instagram story to come out. Uh, Amazing to see everyone. 
Um, we've been working with Matt and Chris on a few executions over the last few months. It's been an amazing journey. Um, we're a small Scandinavian brand based between uh, Norway and Sweden. As I said, we've been working with Chris for over a year now, and he reached out to us the other day. I'm going to be in uh, the UK, coming up here soon. That was three weeks ago, and so we all readied. We got on the phone, and we said, right, can we pull this off? Can we find a location? Can we get, is Matt available? Can we get everyone to come out? And three weeks later, here we are. Um, thank you all for coming out. We're really excited to see you, Chris. Thank you for coming over. Matt's going to go through a few questions, Q&A for an hour. Um, and then he's going to open it up to the room. We've also got some books. Maybe, maybe half an hour. Half an hour? Yeah. Okay. I think we should do a lot of questions. A lot of questions. Yeah. All right. Very good. I also want to... Where's Jamie? Where's my man Jamie? Right. Everyone give it up for Jamie. He flew in this morning from Holland for this. <laughs> Tell you what. And also, Andrew came from Portugal, although maybe to surf as well. So there we go. And he surfed this morning as well. These boys have been in the wave this morning. There we go. All right, with that, I'll hand it over to Chris and Matt. All right, cheers, John. Um, Thanks, Matt. How's it going? Um, my name is Matt. <laughs> this guy's called Chris. Um, yeah, I run a podcast called Looking Sideways. I've um, been doing a lot of work with DB for, for a while now, including some of these live shows. So, yeah, we're going to do... Um, half an hour, 40 minutes, me and Chris chatting, and then questions at the end. I think there's like 20 books of yours um, there is absolutely over there so anyone who asks oh there we go modelled by the lovely Owen um, so anyone who gets a question gets a book basically it has so get, to be a good question though yeah exactly yeah. Um, so get thinking um, so yeah so Chris how you doing well, I, we last saw each other in Stockholm in August it, yes absolutely how and, you been uh, I'm doing great I'm yeah? actually doing really good I got to surf for three hours this morning, which you went was to the uh, wave. super unexpected. I did not expect my trip to London to have a uh, be you know part of a surf trip. Yeah, and it was uh, surprisingly fun. Huge shout out to the wave. It was amazing. They've already put it on Instagram. Yeah. I'm not sure if you've seen I it. Saw that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I will say like I was I was shocked. I've I've surfed a lot of uh, artificial waves. That was fun. It was also a rad community. Like I was in the water with guys who are going to work or picking up like their daughter to go to school at like 7 a.m. And they're like, yeah, I'm just getting my morning session. And I was like, that's so cool. Like yeah. just homeboys from Bristol going out and it just felt like a beach. It felt like a beach, you know, it felt like a community. It wasn't like you're going to the surf ranch, Kelly's pool. And it's this kind of like elitist thing. It was so different. I loved it. The, yeah. vibe, the vibe was all time. So you were, I'm really interested in that comparison. I'm not sure there's many people here that could make the comparison between yeah. <laughs> Kelly's pool and uh, the wave. Yeah. So, so what, what is it you, cause you were saying when we were talking earlier, you were like, use the word elitist a bit. And you were like, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit more formal Kelly's thing. It's a bit more full on. And you, you sound like you like the informality of Bristol. Yeah. I mean, I think that anywhere that community exists is important. And when you, you have a chance to go surf, you know, the, the Kelly Slater wave experience, whatever they call it, um, it's amazing. And it's a surreal wave. It's incredible. It's like an artificial reef. It feels, it's so uniform. There's not a drop of water out of place. It's an incredible experience. It's anxiety inducing, in fact, because it's so expensive to go. And every time a wave comes, you're like, oh my God, am I going to miss it? Like, what's going to happen? Are they going to fall? Am I going to steal their wave? It's, it's crazy. And then all of a sudden, you go from there where you have, you know, your, your, your name on a locker and you're a private chef and everything to this experience where everybody's just eating together and hanging out. People are on a pier hooting and hollering, which is what I grew up with. Yeah. Surfing at a pier, 
you know, where your friends are up there and they're like, you know, yelling at you. And that, that was cool. And I loved that experience. And it's affordable too, which is a huge part of it, right? Yeah. Because yeah. obviously one of your first projects was uh, the, the California Surf Project. Um, Absolutely. The yeah. 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 Um, and that was you basically sort of following the pilgrimage of like the California coast. Like, and, you know, surfing was a huge thing for you in the early parts of your career, right? Absolutely. It's funny um, because I, I would love to give all this credit to, you know, surfing and its influence in my life. But, but so much of it was more about the beach and the culture of the coast, right? Because like when I was growing up, it was more about getting dropped off at the beach <laughs> on like a Saturday morning, getting picked up at noon and being given like five bucks to buy yeah. like a hamburger or something like that. And it was just like a babysitter more than anything. And so I've always found a lot of solace in the ocean. It's, it was the first canvas that I really tried to photograph and document. It was the first kind of thing I tried to work with and understand light. And so in my career, it's, there's just been this theme that the ocean has been a huge part of it. And so I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I come back to quite yeah. a bit, something that resonates with me. The California Surf Project was almost like a rite of passage um, for any California native or anybody who's interested in, you know, I think coastal culture, like traveling from the Oregon border to the Mexican border on the coast is a, is a really beautiful journey. You see some incredible spots and places that, you know, you've read about and, you know, <laughs> and, uh, seen in like endless summer. And, and I, I, for me, that was a really formative trip from... I guess a perspective of somebody who loves the coast, but also as a photographer and yeah. where, I, where I was at in my life in at 21. Yeah. So you mentioned that it was like almost like the first canvas. And, and one of the things we talked about last year is like how one of the preoccupations of your work is like humans and nature and humans like positions in nature. And in your work, like obviously has that evolved? Like the way that you explore that dynamic? Um, no, you know, what's uh, interesting is I think that nowadays we, we have a bit of this kind of cop... Whoa, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, we have a bit of this kind of copy-paste formula within photography where we sort of deem the success of our trips based upon what others have done or what others have experienced. Or if I'm going somewhere, like, oh, if I don't go to that place and that place, is it going to be worth it? Like, as the mystery is stripped away. There's none of it. And I think that, you know, not really, really sure where I'm going with that, but, but my idea is that starting a career within shooting, I think, sports in general, especially yeah. ones where the canvas and where you do it is in nature, you are oftentimes kind of being forced to document this subject. And so for me, I think in the early days, feeling very inspired by landscapes, very inspired by the places that I was getting to see, everything was new. I was so young um, and, and, and the world was very big. And I felt like I just wanted to take a step back and I wanted to show these environments that I was finding, not only myself, but the people that I'm getting to document, whether it's snow or skate or ski or something like that. And especially surfing, like arguably some of the most beautiful locations ever. And I think that the common trends circa, you know, mid-2000s were a little more tight, a little more logo-focused. At least that's what the magazines wanted back yeah. then. And, and I wanted to push against that a little bit. And so I tried to, to kind of force a bit more of a photojournalistic style. And sure. I know that, you know that you're very familiar with the brand Patagonia. Yeah. You have to work for them. Their influence in my career, shooting for them, and having some of the, the photo editors, Jane, yep. Jane Siebert specifically, I remember her coming to me. She was one of the longtime photo editors, and she's like, listen, like, this, think of our catalog, think of our company as, as like, you know, National Geographic. This is pure photojournalism. 
I want you to think about this. Like, I don't care if you ever see a product in any of the shots. I want it to feel like you're telling me a story. And that, that stuck with me. And I think it really has resonated with me today. So that kind of influence and also, as you say, like pushing against the prevailing trend, if you like. Because when you work in that like media environment that you're talking about, you do have to sort of fit certain criteria. You're told to like get a picture published. Yeah. So do you, do you feel like that, that exploring your own ideas, these outside influences, one of the things that helped you evolve the sort of distinctive style that you've got today? Absolutely, yeah. I think a bit of it is it's a mixed bag of things, you know. Um, I'll be the first one to say that like for a big, long part of my career, I was very much trying to tune into like what my editors wanted. And, and I think that, you know, for those of you maybe who, who might not ever submit a photo to a magazine, it's kind of like pandering to what an audience wants and giving them more of that. And then in doing so, you kind of start to lose a sense of who you are as an artist because art should be bold. It should be scary. It should feel risky. That's, the, that's like the, the, what makes up being an artist, right? And so at the point that you stop doing that, you start to question, well, why am I doing this? Yeah. What was the point? And I, and I think back in the day, yes, that was a real kind of pressure point for me was yeah. like making sure that I wasn't losing myself in the, in the desire to please an editor, a client or whomever was kind of, you know, footing the bill, but at the same time, got to put food on the table. It's yeah. I mean, you're talking kind of about creative bravery, aren't you? And, and I think in a way you've got to earn the right to, to have that style, to have that distinctive, especially if you try to balance creativity and commercial needs. Yes, absolutely. And, that, and that's something that you seem to be really good at. Because obviously a big part of your, you know, again, this is something we previously talked about a yeah. little bit. But You're cheating. You're going back on your notes here. You, a little yeah. bit. A <laughs> little bit. I do that quite a lot. Um, but, you know, you're, you are, it isn't just like, oh, I'm like fat biking around Iceland yeah. or I'm like, you know, you've just been skiing in Japan. Like you do a lot of commercial work. You yeah. do, you, there's a balance between the totally. creativity and the commercial stuff. We all got to put food on the table. Yeah. You know, that's, that's how it is. I think... I think that there is a, a balance between going out, shooting assignments that um, shooting assignments that you're proud of, you know, but maybe it's not the work that you want to put out there in the world to yeah. inspire people. Um, I think that everything to me, every le the lens that I look through every bit of work I do, whether it's brand partnerships or whether it's you know the, the commercial work I'm doing, it's like it has to fit into kind of my mission statement, my yeah. thesis, whatever that is. And ultimately, like if one of those lenses is like, well, I want to support my studio, the people that work for me, my family, cool, that, that can fit into that, that parallel. On the other side of it, it's like if it's a brand partnership, I'm like, this thing, this, this product I have to love, yeah. I have to care about, I have to use, I have to be a fan of it before I even started that conversation. So I think that I hold myself at times to kind of a standard to make sure that like what I'm doing gets filtered through some of these parallels. And from the artistic perspective, again, it's about what I just said. Like it has to be scary. It has to make me feel nervous when I do it. It has to, I have to question whether people are going to even care or whether this is going to totally flop. And I think that's usually with every single film you ever put out. It's probably the lens that you're going to look through it at at some point, you know. You use the word mission statement there. So what, what's the mission oh, statement? Oh, yeah, I knew that was coming. Yeah, man. you set me up. It's a great question. You know, it's funny. When I teach, um, and, I, and nowadays I get a chance to teach quite a bit, photography workshops, one of the things I always ask the students, um, and, and I know you guys aren't students here, but I always say, like, okay, all right, who wants to work for National Geographic? And everybody raises their hand. And then my next question is, so what's their mission statement? Nobody knows what to say. 
And it's funny because I'm often like, well, you see, you want to work for somebody that you don't know what they stand for. You don't know what their purpose is. And it's really simple. Their purpose is to inspire people to care about the planet. That's the ethos that all of their digital film, all these things fall underneath. And so to me, a part of it is like, we need to be more cognizant of like who we're working for and why we're working for them. And and also like reflect inward, like, what do I stand for? And to be honest, five years ago, my mission statement was like this long, arduous kind of like, (laughs) uh, you know, paragraph. And now it's really simple. It's just like, nature brings me a lot of joy and yeah. I, I want to spread that joy. And I think that on a more deeper paired back, you know, scaled back perspective, kind of peeling back the layers since we have the time here, yeah. a big part of that comes from my relationship with um, my, the people in my life who've sacrificed a lot for me to be here. My mom, you know, people who kind of like were heroes to me. And I think that realizing how much people had given up so that I had the opportunities that I did. I just felt indebted to like share what I've seen, what I've felt because I'm the only member of my family that's ever left the country and that's pretty significant to me. And so first and foremost, when I started to travel, the only purpose was to come back and share photos with them. I used to come home, do slideshows when I was shooting slides, if anybody knows what those are, and uh, do slideshows for my friends in high school or sorry, just after high school, like I'd be like, bring my, my surf friends over and be like, oh, check these photos out, blah, blah, blah. And like, that was so cool. And I think I really truly feel like social media still to me is an extension of that experience. Like that's what it is for me. Yeah. Um, we should probably get them to show up a little bit at the back. Um, kill the lights. Yeah. Kill the lights. <laughs> it feels like, if it, it feels like for you, you're on a mission to simplify things. Yes. You know, we, 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 we were just chatting about, yeah. You use the phrase, sometimes the view from the top of the mountain isn't what you think it is or something like that. And you were talking about like your home setup and maybe you're thinking about simplifying that. Is that a recent theme? You know, because you've achieved all this success. You've achieved a lot of the things creatively and I imagine materially that you've always aspired to. You know, you've got a lot of opportunities. You've know, you got can, a lot of alpacas. Yeah, 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 you've got a lot of alpacas. The wealthy man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so is it, is, is it changing what your goals are? Absolutely. I, you know, I, um, I, this is a great question, to be honest. And uh, I read this book maybe five years ago called Essentialism by Greg McKeown. Really, really great, um, really amazing book. I would absolutely suggest everybody reads it. And it's really, he talks a lot about kind of learning how saying no to work or to whatever in life is saying yes to what you want. And I think that coming from somebody who is, you know, self-professed kind of uh, workaholic, but, you know, purely from just my upbringing, you know, you grow up in a blue-collar family, you don't say no to work. It's like a, it's like a you know, religious, you know, sentiment to, 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 to move forward and take every opportunity that comes to you. And all of a sudden, when you realize that maybe that's not serving you as much, you just have to kind of reflect upon um, how you might move forward. Yeah. And I think that the effort to simplify is, is, for me, is not so much like my life is so complicated. It's more about looking back or looking forward and realizing that um, to kind of close a chapter of something and move forward, even if moving forward means making it less complicated or making less money or whatever it is, if that brings you joy, then that's what you should do. And I think that um, living an introspective life is something that all of us should do and aspire yeah. to. I think it becomes harder when you have ego and assets and 
all that work ethic that you yeah. talk about, which and, I imagine is quite yeah. hard to unpick. Yeah, but. and you have your name on a building somewhere. Like, it yeah. becomes more challenging to do that. And I, and I think that uh, for me, it's just been something that I've tried to practice this. And I, yeah. I've told people this advice. And at times, you have to just, like, take your own advice and be like, okay, well, how can I simplify my life? How can I simplify those things? Yeah. Has, has that come easy? Or no, you're... not what, none, not at all. Because I've seen your schedule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty hectic. Yeah. Like this morning, get barreled and then come here. Like that was on and the schedule. And then you're off to Iceland tonight. Yeah. yeah and then you got fly. the alpacas next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I imagine you've, you've clearly got drive. You've clearly got a work ethic. So is it, is it and you use the word practice there, which sounded quite, you know, you said you've had to practice this and use it as a practice to like simplify, learn when to say no. Mm-hmm. Is that, yeah, I'm just interested in that. Has it been a challenge for you to it, slow down in that way? It's probably the hardest thing that I'll ever do. Yeah. Um, my wife is constantly <laughs> telling me, like, this is my life's goal is to learn how to, you know, kind of... Have a day off, mate. Yeah, yeah, just, just, to, just to process these things. That's what my wife says to me anyway. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I will say, like, the first 10 years of my career, I, I think that I was looking so far ahead that I couldn't even see the ground in front of me. Like, yeah. I was just so focused. And I mean, that was... That was because of me. Like, I was so eager to prove myself Yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, a, a lot of things along the way became, you know, sacrificial. Yeah. Relationships, family ties, things like that. Like, it wasn't, it's not great. Yeah, the success came, but at the same time, you sacrifice something because you're like, well, I'm, you know, work is the most important thing or this job or that job or, yeah, no worries. I'll spend 60 days away from home doing whatever. And, and that's really tough. And I think that at times nowadays, I'm, I'm really trying to like lower my gaze and appreciate where I am now. And I'll just say this <laughs> so that nobody asks this question. But the thing that I hate, <laughs> I hate the most is I hate when people, uh, I don't hate when people do anything, but I, I hate when people assume that like there's something better because they're always like, what are you going to be doing in 10 years? Where do you see yourself in five years? I'm like, I see myself doing this. I, I worked super hard to do this. Like, I'm here because I like this, not because I'm being paid to do this. Yeah. I love sharing what I've learned. If I was doing this in 10 years, I would deem that successful. And it's as if we have this idea that there's always something better looming. It's such a weird thing. And I, I guess for me, I've just tried to like be here and now, yeah. like, be here and now, appreciate this moment as opposed to 10 years ago, Chris was like, yeah, yeah, there's going to be this, you know, this thing in this project. And like, if that doesn't happen or that falls through, I'm going to be so distraught internally, you know, like some project, the funding falls through or some trip or something I've worked hard to do. And nowadays I'm just like, okay, well, there'll, there'll be something else. Yeah. And it's a trust thing. It comes with time, comes with age. Um, and, and, you know, it's something you learn along the way. Yeah, yeah. So you've got this, I think it's dropping in a couple of days, like this limited edition, well, it's called Editions, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so tell us about that quickly. Thank you. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's it, to be totally honest, it, it's sort of an inside joke within my team that it's a little bit of like a riff upon kind of the NFT space where like everything is so special and it's so limited edition and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, and I just thought about that for a long time and I had amazing opportunities to, to release a lot of NFTs and yada, yada, yada. It's a great space. Nothing wrong with it. But when I think about art, it's just, it, to me, it's tangible. It always has been. Yeah. NFT, That's why I was interested in this because you made this on Instagram. You made this point. I'm glad that you saw that. <laughs> yeah. You made the point. You were saying like, Basically, there's too much ephemera. There's too much things that there's yeah. no that, that lack a bit of physical yeah. substance almost. And, and it's just to, to each their own. Like the best way to analyze it for me is like drone photography is amazing. I use it. I do it all the time. 
I've used it a bunch. But when I really want to experience something and I'm shooting aerial photographs, I want to have my head out the plane window and my hands out there, you know, feeling the wind, like clicking the shutter. That's the difference for me. It's like something is, is slightly more digital experience. Something's a little more um, ephemeral and, and visceral. And, and so anyway, additions is basically um, large format prints that have been hydraulically pressed into a uh, custom-made wood frame, all hand-done, sanded, stained, poured over with resin, blowtorched, Every one of them is basically slightly different because they're handmade. And the yep. goal is to offer a high-end piece of art um, to collectors, really. One yep. of ten each. Ten. Ten yep. each. Two sizes, and that's it. And they're, they're really expensive. I don't know what to tell you, but that's just what they are. Um, they'll always... They're, <laughs> Funny they're, that. They're, they're, expensive, uh, <laughs> they're expensive for us. You know, that's just what it is. You, when you, you aim to create something where there's going to be only 10 yeah. and you're getting a certificate of authenticity with that, like the goal is you want to have something in someone's house where they feel like, wow, that's special. Like, yeah, yeah. And it, and it looks incredible. I've never seen anything like it. Um, it was designed and created by somebody who makes uh, film sets for basically like Disney. And they were like, hey, we have this crazy process. We've, we've only experimented with this and stuff. And they're like, would you like to do it? I'm like, this sounds awesome. Right. So anyway, yeah, it's going to be rad. Yeah. It's going to be cool. It's dropping next week on my birthday, Sunday. Um, so it'll be cool. It's going to be just something. My, the first edition will be um, Glacial River Images because I think they look really beautiful under yeah. that high gloss. Super high gloss. So definitely if you have a lot of light pouring into your home and if you're familiar with printing, don't get it in that space, right? It's something – it'll be like, oh, my – like it's – you need it in like a, a space where it's like, you know, even window light and – Yada, yada. But my goal also is I'll always have offerings that yeah. are affordable and that people can have on their wall because I think art should be appreciated, you know, yeah. not just admired. So photography is kind of obviously the frontier of the debate around like analog and digital and like the merits of, of the way that technology's like affected the craft, yeah. if you like. I imagine you've got a few views on that. Analog versus digital? Hmm. Well, I mean, a good it's, question. It's, I haven't really thought about that. It's, I mean, it's a debate, isn't it? And you know, in terms of like what the tools can give you and how they impact creativity. I guess that's kind of what I mean. I guess it. I'll kind of answer that question with another question, which is like, if we're debating, you know, no, not us, but if people in general are debating about the merits of digital versus film, I think they're too caught up in <laughs> they're too caught up in the medium. And, and to be honest, I think what I would ask that person is like. What other creative outlet do you have that you've never practiced? Yeah. You know, is, is, is public speaking a creative outlet? For me, it absolutely, it terrifies me. Every single time I pick up a microphone, I'm like, am I going to say something really stupid? Like, me too. Like, how soon until <laughs> I get canceled? Um, and so, to be honest, like, these are the things I practice. Yeah. I don't go home and pick up a camera and practice photography. Like, I would rather pitch a film that I know people are maybe not going to understand or not going to see it and it's not going to get funded because you know people just don't fully believe in the project but I believe in it so to me like that's putting your heart on a platter yeah going out and creating a photo for me is not that vulnerable experience being in front of a bunch of people and trying to share life's lessons that's vulnerable yeah sharing a film about a friend that is a very intimate story where you had to ask permission and you, ha you were given permission, that's, that's vulnerable. I think that vulnerability and art intersect, and it's a critical space that a lot of us don't fully 
question and or examine enough. Yeah. I think so. I guess my question is like, I don't care what people shoot. Yeah. 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 I, be, I usually probably couldn't tell the difference. That's tools. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not even a believer in the fact that the best camera is, um, is the one you have with you. I think the best camera is the one you're willing to pull out because usually you'll have this beautiful DSLR in your backpack and you're on some trip somewhere and you're like, Oh, that's so pretty, but it's at the bottom of my pack. And so what you do is you pull out your phone and like, what a beautiful storytelling tool we all have. And what a beautiful storytelling tool we all have in ourselves, in our voices. We, for thousands of years, people have sat around campfires and told stories, and it begs the question of why do we love long-form conversation or podcasts? Because yeah. we want to hear people talk, and we yeah. want to understand, and there's depth to that. Yeah. Um, you lost a friend last year. Haldor, is that how yeah. you say Yeah, Hadi. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Um, which you've been quite open about as, as impacted you. Yeah. Um, I wondered if it affected like the way that you approach your work. Yeah, you know, um, so for context, um, there's a couple photos on this wall actually of, of, of images that I flew with Hadi and he was a pilot and I was a volcano pilot. Yeah, wasn't he? The, yeah. the volcano pilot. Um, and he would love that we're talking about him right now cause he's just, uh, that kind of guy, but, um, amazing person and somebody that truly, um, was, I guess you could say like a, um, he paved the way for me to create so many of what I feel are my, my greatest images and, and, and allowed me to have some of my greatest experiences. He, he crashed his plane into a, um, a really big lake in Iceland just outside of Reykjavik um, while he was um, taking people on an aerial tour. And I had flown with him for thousands of hours all over Iceland, everywhere you can imagine. We actually worked together for seven years, made a book um, about it called At Glacier's End, which is an aerial photography kind of expose of the country. Um, but back to your question, it's, uh, it's interesting because, you know, that was a really hard thing to witness. And I guess the thing you'll, anybody will know is, you know, pilots tend to break your heart. They are cowboys in the most beautiful sense. Like, they are wild. And, and the, you know, it's, it's a challenging thing to, um, to just, uh, you have to accept the fact that some things can go wrong. But I've thought about it a lot, and coming to peace with it for me was realizing that, by the way, has anybody flown with him here? No? Okay. Sorry. Next time. <laughs> There's other pilots out there. But I, uh, I thought about the fact that um, it's so cool that when he was giving people aerial tours in Iceland, most of the time, 99% of the time, people would get on the ground, and they would be like, that was the best day of my life to him. And I thought about the fact that how many of us get to spend potentially the best day of someone's life with them over and over and over again. And I'm like, that's, that's insane. That's incredible. Like, how cool is that? So I can't, I can't be sad, yeah. you know, because I know that he did what he loved. He died doing what he loved. I think that, you know, I would, I would arguably feel gratitude for that opportunity as well. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I guess I just wondered because obviously it's so emotionally, your association with Iceland is so strong. And obviously with the, the work you guys did together and the exploration you did together, um, quite in, intrinsically attached, aren't they? Um, yes. Um, and, and you know, you know you love a place when you lose somebody. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. So you're back tonight. I am, and yes. You, and you've just been in the eastern fjordlands, right? I was, I was in the east fjords of Iceland last yeah. week, uh, shooting an assignment for east fjords tourism. Yeah. Uh, myself and Jeff, actually, we were ski touring to a remote mountain hut with a crew of 
random kind of ragtag crew of like a Swiss um, snowboarder and some uh, Swedish skiers and just like a bunch of Icelanders. It was an amazing trip. We got an incredible weather, saw the northern lights, all the things. The snow sucked, which as per usual, Iceland, right? Yeah. Um, but hit, the hit views mess. were amazing. And uh, just one of those trips where you're like, wow, like this is what it's all about. You know, you the boat came to the bay, this remote bay, after picking us up from being at this hut for three days and you're just like, I don't want to leave this place. Oh, it just, it kills me. So I think that there's something to be said about the fact that uh, this is a place I've been 50, 60, 70 times now. Yeah. And I'm still finding gems and I'm still having experiences that really strike me and pull me in and remind me why I love it. Yeah. Well, we talked last year about you really strongly feel that that that, that's the grounding that's almost given you like the kind of authority to document the place in that way, right? Because we did a fund um, last year, DB Fund, um, where, which was a creative fund where we asked people to apply to, for a grant to help for a creative project. I think we had about 300 entries to that. Yeah. I'm going to say 200 of those entries were basically like, I want to go to Iceland <laughs> and be Chris Burkhard, <laughs> essentially. Um, I mean, that, that is definitely true. So I... And, and we, we were like, wow. And when I did that podcast and released it with you, I, I was like, is Chris Burkhardt the most influential visual artist in the outdoors was one of the questions. Oh, my God. That sort of convert, f- firmed it for me a little bit, though. But does that... You must feel a bit of a responsibility for that because, you know, it's quite a well-worn thing, like people document a place in a, in a beautiful way and then it kind of... There's, there's, there's more people go there and it, it, it impacts the place that you love sometimes inadvertently. So, excellent question. And one that I, I love to answer because I feel strongly, you know, not to steal the words of David Attenborough, but like, you know, Please you do. to, to uh, <laughs> we're all fans. You know, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We are. Mm-hmm. We are in his hood. Um, you know, to love a place you need to experience a place. And if you ever want people to vote for a place, to protect a place, to whatever, um, they're going to have to experience it in one way or another. We could talk about the beauty of, of glaciers till our noses bleed to, to, you know, kids in rural Africa and China, but until we can either bring that experience to them or we can take them to that experience, the world won't care. And so I feel like when it comes to tourism and over-tourism in some capacity, I think that the key component is pushing people to understand what it means to be the right kind of traveler, not the right kind of tourist, right? Paul Nicklin said it best. I did a, I did a um, gallery event with him in New York at one point. We were sitting there, a bunch of people from New York, um, very asking very poignant questions. And Paul, you know, said he's like, "Listen, he's like, the way to save Antarctica is not to have every single person go there. You know, that's just not the answer. It's the right people to go there." And that might start to sound elitist, but the point he was trying to make is people that are willing to go and share what they saw, share the experience of a place, share the concerns of a place, share the issues of a place. I don't consider myself a world traveler because I haven't traveled the world. I literally found the 10 places I loved and just kept going back because I would rather go deep and immersive yeah. with a culture and understand it and understand the issues than just fill myself with dopamine every time I you know, get a stamp on my passport and go somewhere and shoot images out the car window at 60 miles an hour, which I've done. It's a great feeling. And when it comes to Iceland specifically, I've spoken on this at environmental conferences there, so I'm pretty well equipped, but the issues facing it mainly are that there's a six-hour stretch of coast that 90% of the tourists go to, and there's all these places in the east and in the west that are literally waiting for you. People sold their farms in the hopes that tourism would come, and then they didn't. And if you look at a place like the West Fjords, which I've worked with them pretty closely, 
um, 50% of the hotel bookings got canceled because people get to Reykjavik and they're like, oh, it's a five-hour drive. I can't do that. And you're like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like, you're going to miss out on the most beautiful, majestic part of this place because now you're going to miss the places that you saw on somebody else's Instagram feed? Like, we used to go down dirt roads and not just talk about it because it sounded cool, but we would find what was there because there's mystery. And I think that there's beauty in the more remote places. So I think over the last 10 years, I've really focused on human-powered adventure, human-powered experience, as well as getting to the more remote places. I pass by all the busiest, most touristed spots all the time. They're amazing. They're great to see. You should see them. But after that, I seek out somewhere that is a little bit more off the track, and I want to share those so that we can spread it out because the country doesn't have a tourism problem. It has a marketing problem. I'm going to ask a couple more, and then we'll, uh, we'll open it up. Um, so... Um, Angie's ready already, look. <laughs> Andrew's, break, Andrew's break dancing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you were on, I think it was called the Traverse podcast the other week with um, Charles Post. Is that, is that the one? Yeah. yeah. And, and you were talking about... Um, Mike's dead. Cre- there we go. Well, you were talking about creativity, and you were talking, there was a clip that was put up, and it was about... Um, the importance of completing things mm. when it comes to creativity. And there was this whole conversation around, like, you know, that whole, like, done is better than perfect sort of thing, like, completing being a skill, an important part of creativity. Is that something that you, that you buy? I think so. You know, maybe it's just ingrained in me from Boy Scouts or something like that. But I feel like there's this critical thing where, like, I, I've tried to teach my kids to be like, if you're going to start something, let's finish it. And even if the results suck, it's not about finishing it and doing it perfectly. It's about finishing it to a point, feels like this building is going to fall on us. It's yeah. awesome. Um, yeah, a bit, a bit of atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think that I think that the lesson there to me is about finishing something to a point where you can look back and see whether you're proud of the results or you're not. Because it, to me, introspection is everything. That's the only way I've ever been able to learn is usually by bashing my head into whatever it is and trying to figure it out. So the goal of trying to come to terms with either what could I have done better, what could I have done worse. And you only can look at that having the perspective of having completed whatever said task is. Because sometimes in our nature, we tend to um, start a project with no intention of finishing it because then we can give ourselves permission to do a really shitty job. And that's a really challenging thing. And that's the same way I feel with like training for a bike ride. Oh, if I never train, I can always just use the excuse that I, I you know what, I, I just, you know, I didn't have the time and I just tried it and you know, I didn't complete it. But, but like, you, you kind of give yourself more permission to fail. Yeah, no, I get it. Because it's yeah. a commitment thing then, isn't it? It is, yeah. You're basically, well, it's cheating at patience, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you're, not, you're not being honest with yourself, yeah. essentially. Um, all right, last question from me. It's a bit Stephen Bartlett. I'll apologize in advance. Um, what, what's your biggest failure? Oh, my gosh. Just throw that in at the end. Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, not coming to London sooner? No. Yeah. Uh, not surfing the wet. Not going to the advanced plus setting on the wave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I was there. Um, biggest failure. Shoot. I mean, I don't, I don't really, um, I'm not much of a failure kind of person. Uh, <laughs> what I mean. That's a great answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't see, I don't really do failure. I don't really see failure. I don't acknowledge failure. Yeah. No, um, I, I would say that um, I, I you know, total transparency, first, you know, four years of my my kids being born, um, feeling a sense, 
that like my, I was much better serving my family, serving whatever by being at work and on the road. Cause that's what I did best. And then trying to be a dad, having no idea how to do that, feeling like every time I go home, I'd be a failure. And, I, and I, this is kind of a reverse statement, but the, the goal here is like accepting the fact that like you're going to suck at something. You're going to have to figure it out. Yeah. You know, that at the time, that was probably the greatest investment I could have given was like figuring that out. But instead, I just kind of shirked away and worked on other projects that were super fun and great and beautiful and might have inspired millions of people. But internally, I knew that I was kind of in a way hiding from something else. And so I think that is probably, to me at least, one of you know my my greatest failures was not recognizing that sooner right. that they didn't need a perfect version of me because that's what I was afraid is that I would give them some and as if somebody who is like a maybe you know again I work hard yeah and I and I like to do well in things um, I wanted to be a really great dad but yeah. in the beginning I just had no idea because I didn't grow up with one I had no example I had no idea so I had to like accept that like it's better for me just to be there in any format than it is to run away and go do the thing that I know I'm good at. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It, it kind of reminds me of what you were just talking about, about not fully committing in a way. Yeah, fully. <laughs> you know, yeah. similar sort of thing, isn't fully, it? Fully, not fully committing. Yeah, yeah fully. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to take some questions. We are recording this, so I'm going to repeat the questions on the microphone just so it comes across, because otherwise yeah. that's going to be a really shit podcast. Um, <laughs> okay. Hello there. I don't guide them. I'm just going to repeat the question quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm going to do that a lot. Um, how do you help other people find their own mission statement? That's, am I paraphrasing? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question, truly. But, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't guide them to do that. Because the one thing that people often say or come to me and ask, you know, even at the end of a single-day workshop, right? I've spent like eight hours with this person. Like, oh, I'd love to get a critique on my work. I'd love for you to, to do a portfolio review. And I'm like, okay, um, I don't know you. I don't know what your goals are. I have no idea why you shot these images, what your intention was, what the purpose was, anything. I don't know the context. You're just showing me photos, and for me to say these are great or these are terrible, like what's that going to do for you, for your, for your mental well-being? Like I think that there's an intentionality. I take very seriously giving advice, if, and this is the biggest issue I've found with mission statements and with portfolio reviews. I can give you excellent directions, but if you don't have a destination in mind, I cannot guide you there. And usually people have no idea what that destination is. So that takes self-reflection. And that's my answer to that. <laughs> yeah. Down the front. And you guys need to grab a book. Yeah, if you, ask, if you ask, if you ask, the, yes. question, so if if you ask, ask the question, you get a book. Go and, go and grab a book at the end. Yeah. Sorry, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. No running. Don't kill John, okay? Um, Knowing what you know now, yeah. would you have done anything differently? Um, yes. There was definitely a period of time where I was, I was really um, not taking risks within my career because I was so um, paralyzed by the idea of letting down my editors and or people I was working for. And, and, and again, like, I want to caveat this by saying it's critical to like – you do the job, you're working for somebody. At the time, I was working for the magazine, but it was a creative role, and my job was to bring creativity to the table, right? But even creativity and even the dream job can come with the doldrums of kind of being stuck in a creative rut 
and I forced that creative on myself because I was scared of taking risks, right? And scared of pitching ideas that might have gotten shut down or ideas that maybe they, they weren't going to understand or, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I was too insecure in my own thoughts and ideas. So I started to kind of morph what I was doing and shooting into what everybody else was doing because I'm like, oh, well, if this photographer's, you know, getting it done, then I just need to do what they're doing. And if this photographer's doing it, then I can just copy that. And um, it was a really scary time because I realized that, and I, and I talk about this in some podcasts and my TED Talk and other things, that I was really unhappy, very unsatisfied. I had all of a sudden converted somehow what I thought was the dream career path into something that was totally not. And um, it felt formulaic. It felt like pageantry, you know, going to the beach and or like, you know, shooting in these locations or places where I was just kind of recreating images that I thought were going to create success. And a lot of those trips, like there's like these five years of places that I went that just, they mean nothing to me. The photos mean nothing. The experiences mean nothing. And I can't even remember the experience. So that's the, the advice that I would have given myself is like, take more risk, but do so with intentionality and thoughtfulness, you know, don't just go buck wild out there, please. Um, and that would have been made, it made a big difference. Um, I think you were first. I'll go to you next. Yeah. You do like quick draw hands. I want to feel yeah. like, yeah. three, two, one. Yeah. I butchered it, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> Safe space. Yeah. You could say it better because of the accent. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. yeah. How, how do we get comfortable as travelers with the environmental impacts of our... Oh, look at that. Wow. That was um, for you. Always. Yeah. Um, how do we get comfortable with the environmental impacts of our travel? Yeah. Um, unpopular opinion here, but you don't. You give yourself permission to realize that human beings are at odds with the planet and always will be. Okay? And that's an unpopular opinion. Just said that. World according to Chris, okay? The one thing I will say is that I just want to give you permission <laughs> to not worry about solving every single one of the world's problems because it was only for the last 50 years that you've even been aware of them. It's only because of social media and because of an audience or whatever where they're saying to brands and to me or to whoever, you need to solve this problem. You need to speak out on this problem. Hey, do you know that Australia is burning down? Do you know that this is happening? And we should be aware of those things, absolutely. We should think about our impacts. Yet at the same time, it's not our job to solve all of those. I prefer, again, world according to Chris. No journalist here takes this out of context. Um, because it's happened before. As if. Yeah, you can't, yeah. I prefer to immerse yourself in something you feel like you can change. For me, that was a seven-year project to advocate for Iceland's glacial rivers against extractive industries. I understood everything I could. I wrote a book about it. I interviewed everybody I could. That was my initiative. That was my goal. Other goals within my own community where I could see real change and places that I cared about. Now, I care about the planet as a whole, absolutely, but my, my time, my art, my creativity, my passion is best spent in places where I feel like I could actually make a difference. You know, And this is one of the reasons why I decided to spend more time in Iceland because I felt like I could actually make a difference. Where I'm from, not as easy. That being said, there's a lot of things you can do. You can, of course, invest in carbon neutral offsets. You can offset your business. You can, you can come to terms with all the ways in which you can feel a pat on the back. 
like I do and be able to sleep at night, but do carbon offsets really save the planet? I, to be honest, I don't know. I don't think any of us have the answer. I think sometimes it's performative, and that's just the truth. Um, with that being said, doesn't mean we shouldn't still do our part. I travel less now, more than I ever have, and I really try to travel very intentionally. Um, there was 10 years when I was using a camera for work that I wouldn't get on a plane unless it was for work. Never went on a plane for vacation until my wife was like, we need to go somewhere, please. Um, and I just, I just couldn't justify it. I just couldn't justify it. Nowadays, I try to open my mind a little bit more to the fact that, you know, I, travel is not the enemy to me. I know it's easy to demonize it, but I truly feel gratitude for flight. I truly feel gratitude for travel. What it's taught me, what it's opened my eyes to, it's given me empathy, it's given me understanding, it's given me the greatest education I could have ever imagined in the world. And in fact, all of the greatest concerns that we have are because of it, right? All of our awareness and understanding. And I just, I'll leave you with that. It's probably more questions than answers, but that's what it should be. We should be asking ourselves questions. We shouldn't be looking to individuals to solve these things for us. We should be wondering ourselves. And this is something that I ask myself every day, right? Team Rolnack, you were next, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What's the, yeah? What makes you decide to do a project? What what gets you fired up to to, to start something? You didn't say hell yes though. You didn't say yeah, yeah. I'm English. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm English. We don't yeah, say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Bloody hell. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, absolutely. You know, to be honest, it's funny because you know, I uh, I. I'm my own worst advocate sometimes because I'm the person where, you know, I'll talk to my manager, Mike, who's, who's a lot of times doing negotiating. And if there's that dream project out there, he, you know, he'll be like, you can't do this for this little money. And I'm like, no, no, it's a place I just want to go so bad. You know, and he's like, all right, fine. Like, we'll do it. You know, to me, I feel like I have seen behind the curtain a little bit of what some of these, the, you know, the Apples, the Toyotas, the, um, the, the, what they pay and what it's like and what those productions are like. And, uh, you know, the novelty is worn off sometimes, to be honest. And when I can be in a place, when I have a project, and this comes with, with, it comes with time because you have to recognize what it is. When I, when I come home and my wife can see it too, like when I'm like filled up, I always think about, you know, um, creative uh, opportunities as like you're giving of your well. Like I've got a well, it's full. I fill the well up when I'm at home, spending time with people I love, spending time with people who don't suck energy from me and and whatever, eating that good food, whatever that looks like for you. And then when I come here, I get to take of that well and offer it to others. When I've done projects where I'm just exhausted and and I will try to take mental note, like that's a a hell no. Like that's something that I should really consider because of what it's going to take from me emotionally and physically. The ones that sh- I should be saying yes to are the ones that even though I might not be making, you know, what I feel like I'm worth, so long, a little, little asterisk here, so long as there's no resentment at the end of the day, um, you should absolutely do it if it fills you up. And that's what I do. I try to do projects that fill me up. And I try to balance those with the ones where I'm like, well, this is going pa- to be painful. It's going to take a gouge out, but I'm, wi- I'm willing to do it. So, yeah. Um, Usually it's location-based, too. Yeah. Let's do you at the back. We've, they've all been at the front so far. Yeah, that's you. Open yeah. up the back, baby. Yeah. We don't say that either. 
<laughs> Sorry. He told me to say that. Is it overwhelming when you're having these experiences or do you, are you scared or do you enjoy every minute? Um, absolutely terrified sometimes, to be honest. Imposter syndrome is a real thing too. I feel that. Uh, I feel fear. Um, I feel a lot of things. I think that my, my tolerance for risk has changed a lot. Um, I think that that, you know, for example, you know, when I made this film, Under an Arctic Sky, Surfing Under the Northern Lights, some of the risks that we took in creating that film and that project, I never would have taken on my first trip somewhere. It, it, happened, it happened because of the byproduct of meeting locals, connecting with them, trusting them, working with them, and then going through said storm, right? And or, you know, trusting that this thing could come to life. A big part of that was, was my tolerance for risk slightly raising. I'm a very risk-averse person, but I think that over my career, I've tried to take incremental steps to take a little more risk, a little more risk, a little more risk. And sometimes, um, you know, the most vulnerable thing we can do, the greatest, um, I guess you could say, example of artistry we could offer people is, is to kind of, um, you know, be more vulnerable in some capacity. And I think that that scares me too. So I, I, my, that relationship with fear and risk is really critical. I think it's critical for an artist. It, it keeps you on your toes in some capacity, keeps you sharp and keeps you aware. And I, I almost use it as a moderation tool as to like, is it not scaring me? Is it not scaring me at all? Like, then you're a little bit dead inside. And the process, again, I've used this word before, becomes pageantry. You know, you're like picking up the camera, you're like, okay, stand there, blah, blah, like that, that. And I know a lot of photographers who do that. So I guess I look towards experiences that do elicit some emotion, some fear, some element of that. That's important to me. And I think it kind of should be important in our work in some way. Yeah. Um, down the front. Anything that you still dream of? Um, oh my gosh. Uh, great question. You know, um, this sounds so bad, but to be honest, like most of the places that I really spent a lot of time, years and years and years planning or dreaming up or whatever, I, I've had a chance to go. Now, to me, so much of what makes a dream project nowadays is finding a human interest story that is poignant and important to me that I relate to and trying to tell that story set to the background of maybe something I love, like whether it's the ocean or landscapes some of the films and projects that I made owner or Milo or whatever, that's what that is. Right. I think that there's a natural graduation from making just kind of, you know, going on, you know, trips with five white dudes going surfing, which is great and fun to telling a story about, you know, a, a single dad raising his daughter and questioning risk and life and death and, and having all those experiences or, you know, uh, a DNA Navajo photographer trying to, like, advocate for, you know, his, um, you know, relationship with, you know, where he grew up on the reservation. Like, these are stories that are important to me, set against the backdrops that I still love and I understand, right? And I think that the greatest thing we can do for any kind of storyteller is to create space for those people to come forward and tell those stories. It's really important to me. Um, and I think that that is... Those are the projects I dream about. Now, what I, I guess what I was getting at is like I still dream of going back 
to some of those places I'm big into going back. I'd love to go back to the Faroes, back to the Kuril Islands, back to the Aleutians, tell a deeper, more meaningful story. Sometimes I've tried. Sometimes we've had this incredible plan to go there and tell a story about, you know, these Aleut people doing X, Y, and Z. And then you, you go there and you film it and then you put it in front of the brand and they're like, yeah, you know, we just, it's not really showing X, Y, Z product very well. And that's frustrating. That happens to me. That's where I die inside a little bit. And I'm like, oh, it was so close to being good. And the amount of times that those, that happens, it's frustrating. It's really challenging. And I, I know that a lot of creatives can relate to that. You know, you have these dreams of, you know, making something meaningful, making something impactful. And, and sometimes it falls by the wayside. So I, I guess, yeah, I have a lot of dream projects. Some of them I've already tried to do, and it's like I just need to do it again or whatever. Uh, some of them are more location-based. A lot of them are obviously monetarily, you know, restrictive because I have to get the budget to do that. Right now I've been trying my best to green light this film about a friend of mine, um, uh, who relapsed um, right after an expedition that we did. It was a story about a um, close friend of mine and kind of wanted to tell the story about alcoholism and how it kind of affects you and this sort of post-expedition come down that I think a lot of Olympic athletes feel and a lot of people feel after any kind of trip where you've felt like you're on the highest of highs. It's a really interesting story and just trying to work through the funding, trying to work through rewriting the script and all these things. So yeah, I, I, am a, I struggle with that, the artistry of it, right? And in the meantime, I'm trying to do other projects to then funnel more money into that, you know? So it's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Where did early inspirations, do you mean that film specifically? Yeah, those earlier projects, personal projects, where did those inspirations come from? Um, yeah, inspiration is a funny thing, right? I mean, it can come from so many places. I think, as I mentioned before, I had a lot of inspiration from um, my, you know, the people who sacrificed a lot for me growing up, you know, and, and kind of proving oneself to them. And then some of it is, I think that somebody gave me this really great advice one time um, when it came to, like, making films. They were like, there's an, there's an analogy that kind of works really for any film. It's like if you just strip away all the BS and all the storyline and all the stuff, at the end of the day, it's all going to be like Lord of the Rings, right? There's a, there's a main character, and then there's some supporting characters. And listen, if people don't care about these characters, if you're not on board with these characters and what they're going through, you, the film sucks. Within the first 5 to 15 minutes, you have to care. You have to be bought in. When we made Under an Arctic Sky, for specifically an example, it was like meant to be a 10-minute film. And we went there, and all this stuff happened, and I was just trying to be present and aware of the situation and realize, like, whoa, this is a great opportunity. I should not let this get passed up. But the crux and the struggle for me, the very first time I ever had to experience this, was like, I need to create character development where people actually care about these people. I need to show that, like, these, you know, again, five white dudes going surfing who really nobody should care about at all you know, all had something on the line, all had dealt with something that each one of us could relate to so that the story was compelling, right? And that was critical. That was really important. And since then, that has become a key source of inspiration. Working in reverse, does that make sense? Like, in the beginning of this trip, it was, it was a surf trip. That was it. And then all of a sudden, it became more. And then all of a sudden, I realized, I need to stretch this 10-minute film out to 40 minutes, and I need to make people care. And that's why we, you know, it was, it was so widely accepted and it, it premiered at Tribeca and it was accepted into this incredible film community. And since then, that's where I start. 
I'm like, I'm not going to do this trip, this project, this thing. I don't care if you're going to highline across the moon or whatever it is, or you're going to ski down the face of whatever. If you don't have a compelling story or you're not vulnerable enough or you're not willing or there isn't some tie to whatever it is, and I don't, and I don't mean this for like pure just pageantry or performative aspect, like, you know, I'm going to grab this person who looks this way or acts this way. It's someone who has really something to share, meaningful, willing to open up. That's important to me. I, I am, uh, and, and I have this process now. I know we're kind of running over time and I'm talking a lot, but I have this process now where I work with a great writer um, or a handful of great writers where usually I will have them interview that subject. Maybe I've heard a story and I've, I've, I've talked to this person, this gal, this guy, whatever. I will have my friend who is a writer interview them so that they can tell the story without me, so that I can hear it from a different perspective, so that then I can really make sure that I am telling that story correctly. Because it should be from their words, not hearsay. So that's kind of the perspective that I try to tell those stories. Now, that's sort of the model. Um, yeah, either. sound like my wife. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just like, how am I going to paraphrase this one? Um, how do you work out what's serving you when you're so busy on the move, so many different projects, things are changing so much emotionally? And is that, is that you, kind of the you question? Use, yeah, you use those words, what's not serving you? And I'm like, Brie, is that, did, you, did you plant her? Are you a plant? Um, because it's so true, like that, that is true. We always use that terminology, like, is this serving you? Like, do you need to do this? Is, like, who, or who, the question maybe more so is, who is this serving? And I think that, um, yes, I tend to go a lot, I tend to move forward, constant forward progression. There's not much stopping this stone once it's rolling down a hill sometimes. And I do think that taking time and carving out time to uh, create space for oneself is critical. Like, the creative process is usually born out of boredom. That's how people have made most things, right? Like they're just, they had time on their hands. So if you never have time and you always fill up the void with something, you will never be creative, essentially, right? So I guess I try to make time for that. I will also say this, and I'll try to keep this short, but um, imagine going to your favorite, you know, ice cream store and, and it's like all they have is vanilla ice cream. And then all of a sudden, one day you walk in and they have got Rocky Road and you're like, oh my gosh, they put this stuff in ice cream? Like, this is insane. Look at all these things. There's nuts and there's... Like, for me, if photography was the only tool, the only lens to filter that through, I would be so frustrated. So when I did become that way, I became frustrated. I became challenged creatively. I started to work on other mediums, whether that's speaking or whether that's, again, doing a podcast or writing things down or making a film. And that became really healthy for me so I can switch into a different project at the time when maybe one of these things is not serving me or I feel like I'm in a creative rut. And I think that's the key component is that if you're only filtering the world through one perspective, it can become really tough. And so I think that when something maybe isn't serving me, I try to look at it from a different perspective. Like, is, is this thing that I want to shoot so bad or this film that I want to make so bad, is this, is this worth my time? Is this worth my energy? And I will try to um, have another outlet that I can go to and lean on so that I, I can have some reprieve, if that makes sense. Set it aside for a second. But if, it was, if there was only photography, then it would be really hard to set it aside because your identity is wrapped up in it.
I hope that makes sense. Two more, did you say? Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, you, yeah, 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 yeah. Sam. All right. Well, hey, here real quick. So knowing and loving your extended family, mm-hmm. What impact have your extended family had on your career and how can other aspiring people get the same support? Yeah. They can be born into the family for sure. You know, that probably helps. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, it helps with a lot of things, I think. You know, the, the, the beauty of that question is that Sam's cheating because he knows my family. Um, and uh, he knows my mom and how, how incredible she is and was and, um, and still is. So I think that the key component there is like, uh, I, I, you know, for a little context, it was just, I grew up in a single parent home and my mom raised me and I, I didn't have a dad around until I was like 13 years old. And then when my stepdad did come into my life, it was a really, um, kind of a shocking experience, you know, um, what they couldn't provide in the way of, you know, travel or, or money or things like that. They, they provided in love and, and that was really helpful. Um, yet at the same time, it's an interesting one and hopefully this isn't, uh, you know, um, you know, seeming um, insensitive in any way. But um, when you grow up in a relationship like that, slightly codependent um, on another person, you, you feel really indebted to them. I felt like it was extremely challenging to n- choose to quit school and quit my job and pursue photography because I was the only person in my family who could ever do that. And so this, this desire to please and to make someone proud in lieu of pursuing creativity was really hard. I know a lot of people here probably have faced that or are dealing with that now or whatever. I can see it on your faces. Um, and it's tough. And I remember having to come to them and come to terms with like expressing what I want. And, and that was challenging. But them, but knowing that they loved me through that and despite that was amazing and, and changed, I think, my life. And I'm really grateful for them. And I, and I could have been, um, you know, born into a whole other slew of situations. So I'm lucky that I had that support. And, and I think that the, the one thing that I'm just so grateful for my stepdad was just teaching me the, the, you know, the value of hard work. And I still, still see him work today, and that's a really incredible skill that I think is, is kind of becoming lost in many ways. Yeah. Okay, last one. I'm not, I'm not, you can't have one. Yeah, you. Yeah. The wave, Bristol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put me, in, put me in, coach. Ex- expert setting. Yeah, <laughs> you've got one week left. Where are you going? Who with dead or alive? Dead or alive? Good. Another, the Stephen Bartlett alarm, but I like it. I'll let it pass. I like it. Do you want the real answer? Okay, cool. Um, I, uh, me and my wife invested in. Um, a property out in the remote, remote West Fjords of Iceland so that eventually, someday, we can build something there and, and kind of spend time there. And if I had to spend one more week, it would definitely be there. It's like 2,000 acres out in the middle of nowhere. Um, tiny, tiny little cabin and uh, White Sand Beach. It's incredible. It's like our place of solace, right? So I think it makes me emotional just thinking about it. It's so beautiful. Um, but that's where I'd be, and I think that... If anything, I would just, uh, I would want my kids to, like, experience that place. Because it's important for me, for them to realize that, like, I've invested into something more than just, I don't know, 
toys or <laughs> shit like that that just doesn't mean anything. I've invested into something that like means something. And to me, like raw and beautiful landscapes mean a lot to me. And I think that showing them that that's where they can find the most solace and the, mo- the answers to maybe some of life's hard questions. And I just think it's like we put our money where our mouth is. And that's important. So that's a part of simplifying. That's a great question to finish it. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, if you ask the question, see this man. The legend. If you ask the question... Okay, you can have the first one. Eba, maybe you can, you can be in charge of the station over there. Chris has to leave at 5.30. He's got a plane out of Heathrow... Um, so he's around for the next hour. Yeah, don't we, kill me. But at 5.30, he gets carried out of here and yeah. thrown into an Uber yeah. or an underground. Yeah. So. Thank you all. Just want to say huge thanks, you guys, the brand, for supporting this. Um, yeah, I... I uh, I don't want to eat up any more time, but I think it's really important just to acknowledge brands that appreciate and create space for storytelling. I think that that's like can't be understated enough. That's the most important thing to me is that companies, brands, opportunities where people get to gather in an old school way, not just digitally, and actually hear each other exchange ideas. Like I'm so honored. 12-year-old me would have never thought in a million years people would have cared to listen to anything I have to say. Maybe you didn't, but at least you showed up, and it means the world to me. <laughs> and I just want to say thank you, truly. Um, it's an honor to meet everybody, and just thanks for coming out, and, and thanks to DB and everybody here. Yeah, cheers. So there you go. That was me and Chris Burkhardt, and I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, if you did, please consider leaving a comment on Substack so I know what you think or sharing it with somebody. I'm going to be doing more of these. So let me know if you've got any ideas or suggestions if you'd like to hear from for an exclusive paid subscriber chat. Like I said, I've been enjoying the live stuff. I've done quite a few already this year. I think I've done, I think in the last year, I've done about 10 live conversations of these, which is probably more than I've done in the history looking sideways. And. I'm really enjoying them. I used to get quite nervous. And then these days, I don't really get nervous because I've done a lot of the, I've done a lot of live things over the years. I've played music my whole life. So I've done probably thousands of gigs. Um, I've played a lot of gigs to like empty rooms, which certainly focuses the mind when it comes down to it. Um, But I was nervous. I can't remember which, which. I think it was the one in France last year. I was doing. I was a bit nervous, and then before, and I was just a bit like fucking out. Like I can do this. All I've got to do is stand up and talk about stuff that I know about and that I'm clearly not bad at. So uh, these days, I just try and enjoy it. I had a really good fun doing that episode with Chris. Me and Chris know each other a little bit now. Um, we had a good chat and a good laugh beforehand. So yeah, there's a good bit of the old bants going on there and he took my piss taking in good spirit. I mean, it is fair to say that Chris Burkhardt is a bit of an alpha, but what would you expect when you've achieved such success? Um, Still, the definite highlight of the day for me was meeting Andrew King for the first time, who regular listeners will know I had on the podcast a few years ago, been corresponding with for a few years now, never actually met. So it was really brilliant to meet him. He's living over in Arisir at the minute and he came over especially for this and to hang out with Burkhard at the Wave after we did this live conversation. Quite a few of us headed to the pub, to be honest, in time-honored fashion. 
Um, I had three pints of Guinness before heading home, kept a lid on it. Um, we were there with the DB guys, some of my ACM pals, and Phil Young turned up, and then um, another long-time listener, Gareth Farham, turned up. He's another staunch supporter of the show, who I also met for the first time at this event, and Andrew came to the pub, and uh, it was a really good laugh. Like I say, the community in action. So thanks, Andrew. You're absolute legend. Looking forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks, Gareth, as well. And a huge shout out to my DB pals, Marcus, John, Eberton, and everyone else, who were brilliant company as ever and ran that event like clockwork. I did plant the seed not too subtly that we try and do one of these in New York, um, which everyone apart from the person paying for it seemed to really like the sound of. So what do you reckon, eh? Let's do it. All right. There you go. That was the second bonus episode of Looking Sideways exclusively for paid subscribers. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with normal service. In the meantime, thank you for listening. A nice one.